Paul writing to Timothy, as you know, if you've been coming to the study, um, and this, he's a young pastor in the church, and Paul's coming really more second Timothy, but he's coming to, towards the end of his ministry, and he's really trying to equip Timothy and tell him everything that he needs to know to grab the baton from Paul and to continue the work of the gospel. And uh, we come to the, the, the conclusion of his first letter to Timothy. And he's giving uh, Timothy advice regarding different kinds of people in the church. And chapter 6 is a, just another exhortation. So as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of go in a verse-by-verse fashion. But let's read the first two verses. He says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. All right. So he says, let all those who are under the yoke as slaves regard their masters. Paul addresses those in the church who are slaves. Slavery, as you know, was an accepted norm in the Roman Empire, and Paul was not on a campaign to convince the Roman government that it was wrong. Um, I am sure he would have changed things if he could have. But he tells us how he felt about it actually in 1 Corinthians 7. So we're going to flip around a little bit tonight and look at some verses. So 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's just kind of sharing his heart about the whole slavery issue in here. And he says, um, each man must remain in that condition in in which he was called. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Don't get yourself in a situation where you become a slave. Right? That's good advice for us today. We don't want to be enslaved to anybody financially and morally in any kind of way. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So uh, that's Paul's heart. He's he's basically telling them, okay, this is a reality in our life. In In those times, the times they were living in, don't worry about it. Focus on glorifying God. It wasn't an easy, easy issue to deal with. I think it's fascinating that the Bible, in the Bible, we have a letter from Paul to a slave owner named Philemon, begging him to lay down his right as a slave owner and reconcile with Onesimus, his runaway slave, but not on the basis of Roman law, but on the basis of the gospel. He's not appealing to Roman law. He's appealing to the gospel, and he's talking to Philemon, and he's saying, receive this brother but receive him not just as your slave, but as more than a slave, as a brother in Jesus Christ. Now that both slaves and masters, you think about it in the early church, are worshiping side by side. And that's a really interesting dynamic. How should the church think about these things? 
So his perspective was the eternal kingdom perspective. Um, the gospel, I, I like to say, is the great equalizer of men. God doesn't see as man sees, nor does he judge the way that we do. He sees the heart. So whatever or whoever we are on earth, in the eyes of men, is not going to matter to Christ in the kingdom. And I think there's going to be some real surprises in heaven, you know, of the rewards passed out when Jesus comes back to reward us for our works. And there's going to be people that are being highly rewarded that maybe here on earth were regarded as very low, but in God's mind, they're very high. God is not interested in, in you know, if whether we were, you know, a gardener or a famous brain physician, you know, a brain surgeon, right? To him, that doesn't matter. He's always looking at the heart of man. He's always looking at what's in our hearts and how we worship God, how we know God and how we walk with God. In fact, as far as I understand the New Testament, the only way to really impress God is by believing him. The Bible says in Hebrews that it's impossible to please him without what? Faith, yeah. So God's not looking at our resume. He's not looking at our IQ. He's not looking at how much money we earn or don't earn. He's looking at our faith. And a poor person or a hardworking assembly, assembly line worker at Ford's in Detroit or a famous physician or lawyer or judge doesn't matter. What do you have in your heart? Is it faith in God? That brings a smile to the face of God when we believe him. That's what he's looking for. That means every one of us in this room tonight can be pleasing to God. Every one of us can move his heart and bring a smile to his face by trusting in him. And that's the way God's going to judge on Judgment Day. And Paul wants the church to realize that, okay, we can't change this slavery thing, you know, but, hey, let's be a witness. And um, what a powerful witness that would have been to the Roman world seeing masters treating their slaves like dignified employees and those employees working hard for their masters, right? But Paul's telling the slaves, he's saying, look, you doesn't, yeah, they're a believer, but that doesn't change anything. You work hard for them. Be a witness, right? And we want to have that same attitude in our work today. Maybe some of you are employers and maybe some of you are employees, but a part of our witness is the way we work. Part of the message we send to the world is our work ethic. It's so important in the body of Christ. Now, in a democratic country where policy is shaped by the people, right, like the United States of America or England, right, the church should have a voice on this hideous business, right? Slavery is not something we should accept, right? We're Christians, and we live in a land where the government is for the people and by the people. So we have a place in our government to change things, right? England has that. So you look at history and you, you go back to the 1800s and you've got Wilberforce in England, right? And that guy is laying down 20 years of his life to, to stop the slave trade in the East Indies, right? William Wilberforce, if you haven't read his biography, read it. If you haven't, have you seen the movie Amazing Grace? Yeah, it's an excellent movie. Rent it, find it, watch it. Watch what this man went through to put an end to slavery. Lincoln in the United States of America and many others, not just Lincoln, right? They went through a lot to end this hideous practice, right? We, should, we shouldn't 
think that it's okay. The Bible doesn't teach that it's okay. It's just that Paul was in a situation where they were under the Roman rule and Rome wasn't going to change it. Okay? So, going on, verse 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. (laughs) Boy, Paul doesn't really hold back any punches, does he? He's calling these guys godless and depraved. He's not even being nice. So Isaiah 8.20 says this. It says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They're not walking in the light. So Paul's saying, I'm laying down clear teaching, clear doctrine. If somebody doesn't agree with it, you know, um, they're just men of depraved mind. They just want to be controversial. They want to have arguments. Um, these kinds of people, they use the word to argue and debate rather than to grow in their relationship with Christ, rather than to encourage, rather than to build other people up. The word becomes for them something to help them be right. And they want to always be right. And so they're always arguing about something. Uh, Their doctrine was carnal. It got people angry at each other and divided them. Uh, These types of people come into the church and continually stir the pot. They want to talk about something controversial and get people debating. But that's not why we're here. We're not here to have controversy and to debate. We're here to learn the doctrine of God and to worship God and to help each other out on our journey to heaven, right? We're on our way to heaven. We're Christians. We don't need to come into the church to have controversy. Yeah, there's things that are hard to understand that we need to discuss, and sometimes debate is healthy. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who thrive on debate, who thrive on controversy, who thrive on division and argumentation. That's not to be the attitude that we have. They're not happy unless they're arguing with someone about something. In the King James, how many of you are reading a new King James tonight? Yeah, so you have an added phrase that I didn't have in mind, but from such, withdraw yourself, right? Yeah, you see that? So if they're unwilling, if you meet somebody like that in the church and they're unwilling to submit to the clear teaching and the doctrine that leads to godliness or God-likeness, Christ-likeness, Paul's just saying avoid them. Take a step back. Pray. If you can't talk to them, and every conversation you have turns into an argument, just back up, pray for them, allow God to work, but don't waste time trying to change them and don't give them a platform to be heard. Uh, If necessary, the elders of the church may even have to remove such a person, right? Um, So that's what he's talking about. Um, Have you ever met anybody like this? (laughs) Yeah, I have. Oh, my. It is exhausting. It's just exhausting. And I could tell you stories, and you could tell me stories. But this is to be our approach. You know, you try to reason, but if you can't, 
Take a step back, pray, and don't give that person a platform. You know, pray for him. Um, let's keep going. Verse 6 through 11. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So these guys are trying to gain for themselves. All right? They're trying to, to get a following. They're trying to get control in some way. They're on some kind of a trip. They want something. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God and woman of God, <laughs> and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So godliness with contentment is great gain. So let me ask you a question. What do you think? Do you think verse 8 If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Do you think verse 8 describes most people in the church today? You do? I see some saying yes, confidently. I like it. I see some saying no, confidently. You're probably right too. There's a lot of people that I think in our country where verse 8 doesn't describe them. They're not content with food and clothing, right? Because everything around us is telling us that we need to have more and we need to have the, the latest phone. We need to have you know, um, the newest car. We need to have the latest fashion. Man, I saw it in Europe all the time, too, when we lived in Poland. The new fashion would come out, and all of the women would be out buying the latest thing. You had to have it, you know, and it would just change. And it seemed to be changing so fast from year to year. There was like a new fashion. And... um It doesn't matter if you're a poor country or a rich country. Contentment is something that we all have to learn. And it doesn't matter if you're personally poor or you're a person of means. We have to learn contentment. I think sometimes it's harder for wealthier people. Um, But I think what Paul is trying to say is that there is a peace and a rest that fills our hearts when we realize God is the one who is actually taking care of us. When you finally believe that God is really the one taking care of you, right? Yeah, he, we, we need to work hard. We need to be diligent. We need to, we can't, we're not supposed to be lazy, right? I'm not, but at the end of the day, as Christians, we really have to come to a place in our lives where we believe God is taking care of us. God is providing for us. The Bible says God gives us the ability to make money. Right? And so those of you who are great businessmen and women, and maybe you're even people of means, you're fairly wealthy. You know, you need to understand God gave you that ability, right? And with that, rebel- uh, that ability, there's a responsibility, right? To share, right? I'm not talking about communism here. We, I'm not talking about Stalin, <laughs> okay? I don't agree with that. But I'm talking about God gives us talents. And one of those talents is I- I've been personally blessed to know several Christian businessmen, you know, that had just are so generous in what they do with their finances. 
And they give and they give and they give. And it's amazing to see these. They're going to have such reward in heaven, you know. And um, the church has been blessed by these people, right? And so that's a gift. Um, over and over again as a missionary, I've seen God do things for, and my wife and I, we've seen God do things for us we could never do for ourselves. I even have a recent example I've been kind of sharing, and I, it, I've shared it a few times, but I'm so excited about it. So we have Rebecca, who's going into university, and um, I have another daughter, Olivia, who's in her senior year, and they're, they're gonna, both going to be at Cal Baptist in Riverside. Well, you guys probably know Cal Baptist is a private school, and it's not cheap. And so here I am as a missionary, and I'm thinking, how do, Lord, how do we get kids through college? It's ridiculous. I mean, when I was going to school, I went to Michigan State. When I was going to school, you could go a whole year and live on campus for 6000 bucks. It's $50,000 a year to go to Cal Baptist. That's insane. But so we pray, Lord, part of the reason why we go there is they have a third culture kid program. And a third culture kid is a kid who is American but never lived in America before. So if you talk to Rebecca, she looks like a typical American, but she's not. She's never lived in America. She doesn't think like an American. She doesn't. What's natural and normal to the kid going up through high school in the States is not natural and normal to her, you know? And that's true of missionary kids. And so they have a program there to help these kids because there's a lot of missionary kids that go to school there. And, um, so anyway, we pray and we, we feel like this is the best place for her to transition. We don't want her to go to a school where she's going to be hearing all kinds of crazy things taught, as you know what's going on in some of the schools. And so, um, Lord, you've got to provide. So we do the aid, we do all that stuff, you know, and God is providing. They get scholarships, but it's still a lot. So it's a lot for one, but now i got two. <laughs> So I'm thinking, I'm just a missionary. How am I going to come up with that? And um, so, you know, the, the, the numbers are, co- are coming down, but it's starting to get affordable, but I'm kind of sweating it, getting on the plane in Georgia, coming back to the States. We're going to get Rebecca in school, and I'm thinking, how, Lord, how am I going to do two kids? And the Lord's just saying, I took care of you with one. Do you think two's like impossible for me? You know, what, what amount of money can I not provide? And so I'm thinking, yeah, you're right. Why am I worrying? Why do I have to learn this lesson over and over again in my life not to worry? But I was worrying. And so sure enough, like two weeks ago, you know, nothing's changed. I'm just, just trying to figure out, you know, how to get them through. And Olivia, my older daughter, she, sends, she calls us on the phone. We're in Indiana. And she says, you know what? You'd never believe it. Cal Baptist, they just gave me a double major scholarship, and I'm not even a double major. They said they wanted to give it to me anyway, and it's going to be more than usual. So usually it's like maybe $3,000 or something like that for the year. It was like $9,500. Her school is like totally paid for, except for like $1,700, which she already had from working. So she's not, she's paid off for the whole year. Who can do that? I mean, it's like we're sitting here going, we're never going to get there, but we're serving God and we're going to keep serving God. And if she can't go, she doesn't go, right? But God says, no, they're going. 
And he doesn't just do that for missionaries. Missionaries experience that because we ask God. We beg him, Lord, you've got to do something. But sometimes people that haven't gone, where you're not used to asking God for everything that you need, you don't ask. God wants the whole family to ask him. He doesn't just provide for this person. You're missionaries. This country's crazy. If we, if, if we moved back to the United States of America, you want to know something? We'd have to, it's like missionary, we'd have to relearn how to be missionaries in the United States. It's changed so much in the 30 years we've been gone. You're missionaries. You're here tonight. You care about God's word. You care about the gospel. You're listening to me blab about Georgia, and you're, you're actually interested. That's cool. God wants to provide for you too, and he will provide for you. But you've got to ask. You've got to believe that he wants to provide for you. And when we learn that, when we learn that God, if I put first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'm really putting Jesus first in my life, my personal time, my time serving in the church, my time at work, if I'm putting Christ first, God promises to provide. He doesn't want us worrying about this stuff. And if he's given you the ability to make money, do it. But be careful. Be careful because money is the root of what? All sorts of evil, right? The idea isn't money is evil. The idea is money is the root of all kinds of evil, okay? I've seen the reality of verse 9 lived out in Poland, the first, the first mission field where we lived. We had a small church in a, t- in a town called Lublin. And some of our very good friends, they had been Christian for years. They were some of the first Christians in that city. Um, a lot of fellowship was happening at their house. This guy, my friend Jack, I'll call him, he was a very successful businessman. He had a, a small fruit distribution business, and the company was growing. And, um, you know, we had so many Bible studies at his house, and um, those guys, they were just such a blessing to the church. But his business was taking off, and it became a multi-million dollar business. And the thing with it was that the more money that he had, the more, the bigger his business grew, the more important he became, you know. And then it was, the temptation wasn't even money. You know what it was? It was power. He started messing around on his wife. You know, marriage ends. He's got the biggest house in Lublin, you know, but his marriage is over. You know, doesn't even go to church anymore. Doesn't even care about God. This is a guy that was like a pillar in the church, but money is the root of all sorts of evil. His life, spiritual life is destroyed. And it really wasn't about even so much needing to have more money. It was being tempted with pride. He became prideful. And pride is really the root of all sin, isn't it? And that's what money will do. Maybe you're not, it's not the dollar amount or anything like that that tempts you, but it's pride. Oh, look at what I have. Right? And that's what happened to him, and it ruined his life. It literally ruined his life. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Yeah. Um, in verse 11, he says, But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 
So run away from the things that can destroy you and run to that which will supply your faith and give you an eternal reward. All right? One day we're going to stand before God and we want to stand before God and we want to enter heaven with an abundance. And when Jesus comes back and he's coming soon, he doesn't want any of us to be ashamed. He doesn't want, when Jesus comes, if he comes tonight, he doesn't want any of us saying, I'm not ready. He doesn't want any of us saying, oh, I'm doing that. I never stopped doing that. Your spirit, Holy Spirit convicted me and told me not to do that. But I'm, he doesn't want us to be ashamed. He doesn't want us to be in sin. He wants us to be pursuing love, pursuing faith, pursuing righteousness. You know, we went to see, did you guys see that movie, Sound of Freedom? Uh, incredible movie. We saw it in Indiana. Really well done. Um, but <clears throat> before that movie came on, they had the previews. What do they call them? The um, trailers. And in Indiana, the trailer they showed was this. No, the trailer they showed was this new movie that come out. I don't even want, know the name, and I'm glad I don't. But it's this, it was the whole basis of the movie was these kids that were getting into this demonic thing where they were. Um, entering into this, I don't know, um, spirit guide thing and literally becoming possessed by demons. It's this new movie that's out. And so you, there's like this hand thing, right? And they have to grab the hand, right? And then they open up their heart to this demonic realm and then their, their lives. And I, it was a three-minute trailer and I was turning my head and it was, Kendall and I were like turning ahead and saying, don't look, man, let's just get up and leave. It was that bad, three-minute trailer. It was so dark. Then I'm, I, I just couldn't believe it. So then I'm talking to my daughter, Rebecca, and she says, yeah, she read a story in the news about it. Kids are going to watch the movie, and they're passing out during the movie. They're getting demon-possessed right in the movie. They're getting filled with demons. Pursue righteousness. Pursue love. Pursue helping people. We're entertaining ourselves to death. And Satan knows it. So he gives us three things. In the rest of the chapter, we're going to see three good things that we need to do. Okay, let's read it first. 12 all the way to the end. And then we'll go through it. He says, fight the good fight of faith. So as you're going through, if you're reading your Bible and you're taking notes, go ahead and Underline every place you see the word good. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. uh, And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. We'll stop at 19. Did you underline all the goods? Yeah. So the first thing that Paul tells us to do is fight the good fight of faith. That's a great sentence, isn't it? Fight the good fight of faith. How many of you thought about faith as a fight? Yeah, probably, yeah, some people are raising their hand. Yeah, it's a fight, isn't it? What is the good fight of faith? It's the fight for men's souls in the advancement of the gospel. It's the fight against Satan and the kingdom of darkness and as many snares he lays to take people captive. It's the fight to stay true to God and not to allow the world to get us marching to the beat of Satan's drum, right? To the beat of the drum of the world. There are a lot of Christians out there that don't even realize they're in a fight. It's hard to win a fight when you don't even realize you're in it. We're in a fight. Like a heavyweight champion in the title fight, we're to be fully focused on the prize. Right? If you're in the ring and you're fighting the heavy, you're in your title fight, title bout, right? You're, there's only one thing you're thinking about, and that's winning. Scoring as many points as you can and and beating the opponent. The Bible calls it single-mindedness. Paul is saying, stop with all the worldly stuff and get in the ring. Christian, get in the fight. When, when people pray for us, when we're out on the mission field and we're trying to do God's work and people pray for us, we feel it. Prayer makes the difference in all of the work we do. We're, we're no different than you are. But when people care, when people read the newsletters, when people pray, people pray, things happen out on the mission field all the time. But when people don't pray, not much gets done. If I were to do Poland all over again, I felt like Poland was a really, like Rob said, it was a really hard place. I would just get a massive amount of people praying for us. you know, Because I felt like that's what that country needs. It needs a lot, a lot of people praying for it so that a spiritual breakthrough can happen. Now, you may not be called to go, but if you're called to be in, in, in the body of Christ, you're called to pray for someone, somewhere. Your prayer today, tonight, could change the life of some little African kid you'll never meet. He could become the next Billy Graham. And literally tens of thousands of people could come to Christ through his life because you prayed, you interceded. You could be, have a reward through that kid's life. Faith has a rippling effect to it. Faith is like taking a stone and throwing it in the water and the the waves go out and out and out. When every time we obey God in our lives, every time God says, pray, stop and pray, and we pray, we throw a stone in the water and you have no idea where that wave ends. That one stone, that, that 10, 15, half an hour of prayer, that could result in a changed life in China. You know, you pray for this guy. His life gets radically touched or saved. He shares the gospel with someone. That person becomes a missionary. They go to China, and somebody's getting saved in China because you stopped when God told you to pray. You were on the 405. (laughs) God said, turn off the radio. Spend the next 20 minutes in this traffic jam praying. You're fighting the good fight of faith. That's faith. That faith can change the world. But you have to see it. You have to know that the spiritual reality. The Bible calls it single-mindedness. 
Learn how to pray, share your faith, invest in the kingdom of God, grab hold of eternal life, be shrewd in the matters of the kingdom. Be, you know, shrewd. When you think of shrewd, that's not really a positive word, is it? <laughs> shrewd. It's like Scrooge, right? Like, be Scrooges <laughs> when it comes to earthly mammon. In other words, take it and use it for God's glory. Learn how to do that. One of the things that I've realized about money as a missionary is I never, we've, in, tw- in 30 years of being missionaries, we've never asked for it in a newsletter. We've never ever told somebody what we've needed, and God has always provided. And he's used people to, in his provision. Um, and um, I just realized that well, I'm not going to go that way. <laughs> I was just thinking about something, but I, I just decided I, I, I wouldn't go that way. But I guess what I want to say about it is just that God can do things for us that we could never do for ourselves. But when we pray and we ask God, he provides. Yeah. Um, number two, make the good confession. So fight the good fight of faith. Number two, make the good confession. That's also in verse 12 and through... Uh, down through verse 13 there. So it's like 13 through 16. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul reminds us of the confession that he made. He says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So that was a a confession that Paul made. Um, In verse 13, he mentions, I charge you in the presence of God, back in chapter 6, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So think about that. Jesus was standing before Pilate, and he said, you say correctly that I'm a king, for I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Jesus stood before Pilate and he made the good confession. Pilate answered, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus confessed openly that he was a king and if you wanted to come into his kingdom, you have to love truth. You cannot enter the kingdom of God loving lies. You have to love truth. That's the good confession. In Romans 10, 9, Paul tells us that if we that um, he tells us that if we confess, if we want to be saved, we have to confess with our mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. So we have to make a confession with our mouth. When he comes, we don't want to be ashamed of his coming. Um, so we have to make that confession. But notice verse 14, he says. And you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. A part of our confession is also our behavior. So we have to confess with our mouth. We have to make the good confession. We should not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, right? Don't be ashamed. Make the confession. But a part of our confession is our behavior, We're not to bring a stain or reproach to the name of Jesus in anything we do or say. 
until Jesus comes again. Boy, that convicts me. I think about my driving. See, I don't drive in Georgia. And then I come back to California and I have to drive. And I'm like, how, do, how does anybody drive without sinning? You know, <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I'm thinking about the good confession here. I'm in trouble. The, no, you know what I'm saying, right? We need to be full of the Spirit every day <laughs> just to get in our car and go somewhere. Um, so, but that's what he's talking about. Our behavior is a part of our confession. Now, this is really fascinating in verse 15 and 16, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's talking about God, right? He's talking about God the Father there, right? Because he's saying that you will keep the commandment without stain or reproach till the appearing of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord alone, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. And I just want to take a moment with you to really talk about this verse. Paul just begins praising the Lord, but it's a crystal clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That Jesus Christ is God. It couldn't be any clearer. God is the only sovereign but he's also the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who else is called King of kings and Lord of lords? Jesus. Who can tell me where? Where do we read that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords in the New Testament? Which book? Revelation. That's right. It's in Revelation 17, and it's in Revelation 19. All right. The name written upon his thigh is King of kings and Lord of lords when he's coming back and he's going to return. So God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the Son, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, okay? Now notice verse 16. It says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Okay, this is also interesting. Turn over to the book of Revelation. We're almost finished. Hang in there. Just a few more minutes. Revelation 4. And let's just look at this phrase a little bit. This is the... In the book of Revelation, we get the message to the seven churches. Then before the tribulation starts, we get caught up into heaven with John, right? And so Revelation 4 and 5 is before the throne of God in heaven. And notice Revelation 4, verse 9 and 11. It says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him, who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor, power, honor and power, for you created all things, and because of, of your will they existed and were created. It's talking about God, isn't it? To him be honor and dominion and glory. Now turn over to chapter 5, uh, Revelation 5, verse 12 and 13. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. All right? You can't say that Jesus is any, anyone less than God because God doesn't share his honor and dominion and glory with anyone. Right? And here it goes to the Lamb and to the one who sits on the throne. So there it is, just a little apologetic for you that Jesus is God. God shares his honor and glory with no one. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right? That's why we believe the Trinity. All right, finally, number three. Number one, we were to fight the good fight. Number two, make the good confession. Number three, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. We see it in 17 through 19 of 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We're going to fix our hope completely on Jesus Christ, the grace to be brought to us, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1. We're to use our free time, our resources, to be rich in good works. Paul's letter to Titus, which I assume Pastor Rob is going to get to, um, next, I don't know what, what the program, the teaching program is, but that letter is a treatise on the role of good works in the life of a believer. So when you, as you go through Titus, you'll see the role of, and the emphasis of good works in the Christian life. Good works don't save us, but they do supply our salvation and keep us in the will of God. So it's really good to do good. We're not saved by doing good, but we do good because we are saved. And you know what? Doing good is just a lot of fun. I mean, if you're depressed and you're down or you're not feeling good about yourself, Man, one of the greatest cures for depression is to go and do good for somebody else. That'll snap you out of depression so fast. It'll encourage you. You'll just feel like you were the tool in the hands of God in that person's life, and you were, right? Doing good is one of the greatest cures for depression, I'm telling you. It really is. Verse 19 is teaching us to store up our treasure in heaven. Again, so much time in, in Western culture, not just here, is entertaining ourselves and accomplishing goals that in eternity won't last. So we can spend all of our time trying to do these things that for eternity won't matter. But doing good will matter. Jesus teaches us um, to do good in, in the Sermon on the Mount, too. Um, look at Luke chapter 12. So Luke 12, you also see this in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 12. I want to look at verse 32 through 34. This is Jesus. He says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Verse 33, Sell your possessions, give to charity, Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We had a missionary friends that just moved to South Africa 
Did you know that like in Johannesburg and some of these places, they're some of the most dangerous cities in the world? And they, they moved there. The first week they got there, they went to church on Sunday. Somebody beat down the door of their house, literally, and the gate coming into their property and went in their house and took all of their, uh, all the family's laptops and devices, took everything. First week they were there. I had a friend, we had an acquaintance that visited us in Poland that was from, I can't remember which place in South Africa. His house had been robbed 17 times. Some of the times they were in the house. It was just armed robberies. 17 times. You know, you live in South Africa, you don't believe anything you have is yours. (laughs) Right? And so... It's true. That's the reality. We don't experience that here as much, but it's the truth. Hey, store up your treasure in heaven. The idea is don't hold on to your stuff. Don't don't put your hope in stuff. Keep your hope anchored in the return of Jesus Christ. When God gives you stuff, use it for his glory. Finally, let's just read the last two verses, and then we'll, we'll, have, um, we'll ask Pastor Rob to come up to pray for us. Um, Paul says here, he charges Timothy in this letter. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul gives Timothy one final reminder not to get dragged into the arguments of these arrogant men who claim to have knowledge, but it's really a false knowledge, and to guard the truth which was imparted to him. I like that. Guard the truth, right? Guard it. God's given us something. He's given us his word. He's given us the gospel. Guard it. Don't let anybody take it away from you. Man, and and there's so much stuff blowing through the church, isn't there? There's so many new teachings and so much stuff being said. But here, for many of you have been sitting here for years, and Pastor, the, the, the teachers in the church have been giving you this precious truth that Paul was giving Timothy. Guard it. Value it. Put it in your most expensive box and hold on to it and value it and guard it. Don't let the enemy and don't let anybody take away these truths from you because this is reality. Heaven is real. Jesus is real. Jesus is coming back to bring us there. Don't let anyone take that away from you. Amen? Amen.